0: No matter what we do, we need help. Even if we're accomplished at it now and we're able to teach others, there was a time in the past when we needed to learn. And if the truth be told, there is never a time when we stop learning. None more so than what Peter has been teaching us about how we live as strangers and aliens in this world. So let's turn to chapter 3 and verse 8. It would be good to have your Bibles open at page 1219. And we pick up on Peter's instructions to us there in verse 8. And in that section 8 to 12, Peter reminds the church how it should live. It reminds the church how it should live. There are five things here in verse 8 that will help a church not just avoid trouble within but also help develop relationships throughout it. And Peter first mentions be like-minded. This little phrase, this Greek word, means to live in harmony. So to live in harmony with one another means to think in the same way. What Paul is saying here is that there needs to be within the church... Unanimity, not uniformity. There are plenty of issues on which Christians can disagree about without the other one being wrong. There are issues that we can uh, agree to disagree about without undermining the centrality of the gospel. Uniformity means everyone has to think in the same way about every aspect of christian doctrine and living that's in doctrinization. and that's often a hallmark of a cult unanimity on the other hand is seen when our minds are focused on the things of god because we love him and delight to meet with him and seek to be of one mind concerning him when there is unanimity then God will continually renew us as the people of God, people who long to see the kingdom of God come in power so that the world might believe that Jesus is Lord. We come come to worship. Worship is something that we do together. We all have different interests and gifts. We all have different views on things. But if we are like-minded and we seek to live in harmony with one another, then we can experience unanimity without uniformity. And we will be like-minded, says Peter. But secondly here, we are to be sympathetic. The actual translation here is to suffer with. When one member hurts, all the members hurt. And when one rejoices... All the members rejoice. The late Professor Ed Clowney in his commentary writes, The love that binds the body of Christ together not only seeks the other's good, but enters the other's needs and concerns. That is why we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and in particular weep with those who weep. That is why we need to be concerned about one another about each other the body would be the body would be helpless if the eye ignored the foot or the leg ignored the arm but being sympathetic means a broader support for one another and not simply just being consumed in ourselves and then thirdly peter says we are to love one another Brotherly love is something that is specifically Christian. It comes from the idea that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we are loved by God the Father, so we must in turn love our fellow believers. 1 Corinthians, part of which we used as our call to worship this morning, summarizes this deep love that Christians should have for one another. This passage is often read at a wedding to sum up what love should be between a husband and a wife. But it was for the church that Paul wrote these words. This is how as a church we should live as strangers and aliens. This is the kind of love that we are to show to one another. This is how we are to relate to one another. One commentator writes, almost all the problems in the lives of local churches can be dealt with when there is a baptism of love on the people of God. We are to be like-minded. We are to be sympathetic. We are to love one another. And when we stop loving, then we stop being the church. The fourth command here is to be compassionate. Compassion has been described as love in action and some of the loveliest memories we have of uganda is to see how appreciative folk were to receive tangible acts of compassion the mama packs that so many of you contributed towards to allow women and labor to have safe deliveries or bible materials for pastors or sports gear for the schools Or even just a sweetie for a child that makes them smile. The first century was a difficult and a dangerous place to live in. And Peter knew that it was important that people were not guilty of compassion fatigue. They needed not to be consumed by their own needs and their own lies, but to always be thinking of others. And the thing that really struck me in Uganda was that we met some folk who didn't have a huge amount themselves. People like Pastor Daniel, who we saw last week, or Madam Victoria in the middle, or Bernard, the principal of one of the schools. These people have very little, but they are so concerned that the needs of others might be met first even though a lot of the things that we were giving to them, they could have benefited from as well. Compassion is an activity. It looks for people in need and then goes and does something about it. For us here in the church, it can be as simple as taking a meal to someone or giving them a call or dropping them a note or a text or bringing them out for a cuppa, or even bringing them to an activity in the church. Compassion is all about being involved in people's lives, and not just in the receiving end of it, but also uh, on the giving end of it, but also on the receiving end of it. Some of us are very happy to give compassion, but reluctant to receive it, even when we desperately need it. Compassion calls us to have a deep concern for one another. Paul urges us to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in Christ God forgave you. The Gospels speak of the compassion of Jesus for the crowds and the sick. spoke about the compassion of the prodigal's father and that of the Samaritan on the road. So our compassion must be modeled on that of the Lord Jesus. However, it is only God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that can move us to show his compassion. And then we're, fifth, we're told fifthly here to be humble. The Lord Jesus was humble and did not account, count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2, 6 to 8. So we must live a life of humility before him and in our dealings with one another. How often do we feel to live like this? Every time we try to make ourselves something. Every time we try to impose our thoughts, our ways, our agenda. Every time we use the word me, my, we then we fail to be like him live in harmony with one another be sympathetic love one another be compassionate and humble together these combine to create a life of blessing and a witness for us to live together as the church in this world where we are strangers and aliens says peter but Peter was realistic about putting these principles into practice here. He knew about pressure and denial and how we can fail. And so he adds, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, verse 9. We are to bring blessing, even in the hardest of circumstances. That is how Christians get even, so to speak, by blessing those who seek only evil for them or insult them because of what they believe. It's all part of turning the other cheek at, no matter what you say to me, I will not return like for like. However, it is hard to have this attitude because our sinful nature sees blessing those who offend us as the last thing we want to do rather than the first thing we're required to do. And so Peter here quotes from Psalm 34, Whoever would love life and see good deeds must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Someone has written these words, Our tongue can be a devastating weapon of Satan inside our church. Isn't it interesting that when Isaiah met the Lord in the temple, it was on his lips that the burning coals were placed? And they go on, Within the church, we need to commit ourselves to use our lips to build others up to bless them and to share the good news with others. Do good. Seek peace. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And remember, says Peter, if we do things that displease God, he will actively oppose us. This is what brings a blessing to a church and the people within it. But then secondly, in verses 13 to 17, Peter reminds the church how they should live then in the world, this world in which they are strangers and aliens, Peter is not saying here that no opposition or persecution would come their way and will ultimately harm them. He does not know what will happen in his life, let alone theirs. But he does know that as a church, they were living in a dangerous world with uncertain times ahead of them. He was writing these words at the outset of centuries of persecution. A chronicle that is still being written in labor camps in north korea the prisons of iran and somalia and pakistan peter was preparing the church here not simply to endure persecution but to find an opportunity for witness within it he's saying that christians must exchange the fear of men for the fear of God, verse 14. Peter gives the secret to boldness as one who had found it himself after failure. Waiting in the courtyard of the high priest's house while Christ was being examined, Peter had failed miserably, remember? That was John 18. But fast forward to Acts chapter 4, and there is Peter and he's standing in front of that same tribunal that had examined Jesus. And he who had feared to confront the servant girl now confronts the high court. And he accuses him of crucifying Jesus and refuses to be silent. And he declares, We must obey God rather than men. Peter had lost his fear of men by gaining The fear of the Lord, verse 15. He had set apart Christ in his life. The word set apart here means to sanctify the Lord. By doing so, we too recognize the lordship of Jesus as well as confess his deity as Christ. But to break the fear of men, we need to confess the lordship of Christ. However, it is also the fear of the Lord that gives us hope, says Peter here. Hope is something that looks to the future in the light of our salvation. Hope here, uh, Peter here shows that our hope provides us with both the courage for our witness and the content of our witness. Our hope is in the risen Lord Jesus. But why is our hope in the Lord? If someone asked you why you are a Christian, what would you say? What is the reason that you would give to them. You see, people today do not see the, the meta narrative that is called the big picture. Instead, in our postmodern Western world everybody believes that everything that everything they believe is as true as anything anybody else believes. And everyone has their own little picture, their own understanding of what is the truth. And so as Christians, we have a huge task in convincing people that there is a universal truth, that there is a big picture, there is a meta-narrative, and it is revealed in the Bible. And if you were with us last Sunday evening, we, you would have heard Mark Ellis from Christian Unions Ireland argue why we should trust the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's inspired word, and that Genesis to Revelation— tells us one unified story, even though it is written over hundreds of years by lots of different authors. But whatever our reason for the hope within us, says, Paul, says Peter, we are to give it, in verse 15, with gentleness and respect. Peter says we are to keep on doing good even though we might have to suffer for it. There in verse 17... I remember a friend of ours whose father many years ago put his job on the line because he didn't agree with what he was being asked to do at work. Eventually he lost his job, but he kept his conscience clear. And I do believe God has blessed him because of that. The danger facing those to whom Peter was writing was for them to retreat into a shell and do nothing because of the probability of persecution. But what Peter is asking them and challenging them is to go out into this world and live their lives in such a way that non-Christians would ask them about their faith. Is that how we live our lives? Peter assures them and assures us that if we live our lives close to God, then in the end we will be vindicated and God will honor us. So how then shall should we live within the church? How then should we live as the church within the world? And then finally, very briefly, in verses 18 to 22, Peter reminds them what God has done both for the church and the world. And and this can be summed up in the death of the Lord Jesus. Verse 18, if Christ's sacrifice were not complete, it would have to be offered again as the Old Testament sacrifices were. But Christ suffered and died to pay the price for sins fully and complete. He who was without sin took the place of sinners and through his death he won life for his own. Verses 19 and 20 have been described in this way by uh, Martin Luther, a more wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I just do not know for certainty just what Peter means. The content here in these context here in these last few verses is assurance in the midst of suffering, so it must mean something good, since Peter's aim was to encourage the people of God. And also the people to whom he wrote must have understood it. Otherwise, there was no point in Peter referring to this. There are a number of theological viewpoints on it, but uh, don't have time to consider them this morning. However, we can say that God calls us into the glorious knowledge that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the the dark powers are held in place and we can have the victory. Because Jesus is in control, we as the church can make a difference in this world, even as we live as strangers and aliens. And here in this letter, Peter stresses the authority that Jesus has over all the powers of creation. These people need not fear the sword of the Roman magistrates or the fury of Satan because they belonged to the lord of glory through their baptism they are participants in christ's resurrection victory says peter in the time of napoleon bonaparte in one of the conscriptions a man who was balloted to a place and did not want to go had a friend who offered to go in his place his friend joined up and his name was sent off to the front and was killed in action Sometime after, Napoleon wanted more men, and by mistake, the first man was balloted a second time. You cannot take me. I am dead, he said. In such and such a battle, you left me buried on the field. Look up your books and see, he said. And they looked up the books, and they found that he had been killed in action. It must have been a substitute, they said. Yes, that is true the man replied he died in my stead and the law has now no claim on me we too can take great encouragement for what christ has done for the church and for the world once for all means our sins have been atoned for he took our place and the law has now no claim on us We can be forgiven, so we can live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. We can live as strangers and aliens in this dangerous world with a hope and with a reason for that hope. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you and me to God. And it is in that power that we go. This then is how we should live. But the question is, will it be the way that we do live? Let us pray. Father God, you have set before us a challenge of how to live for you in the situations and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live with this hope before a watching world that they might recognize Jesus and give glory to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.